Okay, we are we are live, guys. This is uh, episode two of of Growing Down podcast. How are you both doing? I'm doing fabulous. Doing pretty good. Thanks, for Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. I know this is our spaghetti on the wall podcast. So, um, in the spirit of that, have you guys been following anything? in the news today today we are recording this by the way uh monday march 23rd at the end of the day i've been writing an essay all day so i have no idea what's going on in the world yeah last update i mean uh basically the senate and the house house are still at an impasse as far as uh passing uh the i think the third stage of the relief bill i think the main topic is the slush fund and and I think also Pelosi might be, if she hasn't put out something already, um, just thinking about putting something out. Nice. So I know that, um, well, uh, this morning, right, I think the, the stock market dropped a few hundred points while we yeah. were waiting for this thing to, to get passed and then everybody getting pissed off that it wasn't passed. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the last news that I heard of it, that it just, um, you know, it, it got stalled because it's basically just kind of a, a slush fund for big corporations. Yep. Yeah. It's, and then um, a couple days ago, like uh, Michael Brooks was talking about the means testing that the Democrats want to push into this thing, which I think is a big mistake, but um, it's probably happening anyway. The what? Means testing. You want to talk a little bit about that? I'm not sure. So that's like applying for the money and getting means tested in terms of like what your income bracket is and uh-huh. whether or not you'll get more cash or less cash, et cetera. And probably having to do some kind of online form to get it instead of just a simple send everybody cash. It's uh-huh. a more complicated red tape process, um, which the Democrats like to do. So, you know, I, I know that's been an issue, but even with that, you know, uh, I guess I am happy that they, are trying to limit or put constraints on what the banks can do and what the corporations can do with the loan. Um, I know that's been an issue since the 2007, 2008 crash where, you know, like the airline companies would just buy back their stocks, you know? So we want to prevent that from happening. So I guess it's good that it was stalled, but it's also kind of a lose, lose situation, right? Like the longer we wait. Yeah. I mean, I know I was talking with you guys earlier this week that, I mean, my, this is the part of politics that just makes my heart drop out of it. It gets, uh, something gets lost in the process or in the translation, I guess, of having things matter. And it just kind of, my brain just kind of goes crazy trying to think about the details that can go into this thing. But, um, I mean, it's been a crazy, uh, crazy week, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Early face in the next Great Depression, um, the bottom's falling out. Uh, people are, I think, I forgot who shared it, but Crystal Balls asking to suspend capitalism. Uh, everything's kind of going down in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. the means testing thing from the Democrats really pisses me off, and that was a huge reason why I was so supportive of Yang and UBI because it just cuts through all of the bureaucratic crap and red tape and hoops that someone has to jump through in order to get some basic welfare support. 
And that's why I'm a huge fan of universal programs. And Crystal Ball talked about this too, and why I think means testing, especially at a time like this, is just a terrible idea. When we need the relief now, people are struggling uh, to stay afloat and just give people the money directly. And there's also this there's also more to it in terms of long-term impact of means testing versus not means testing and that uh, it takes away, you know, incentives to lie about your income or just stay in a lower bracket. And also um, takes away the stigma of like, Oh, you know, these are the poor people who are, who are being leeches. It's like, no, everyone just get this, gets the money directly. And I, I've always been more supportive of universal programs for that reason. And I think that the resistance of the Democrats um, to to a direct payment, I think it's it's really a generational hangup, and that mm-hmm. a lot of older people they can't conceive of universal programs without means testing, and that's something that's going to be a major obstacle that's going to be that has to be let go of in order in order for us to really move into the future that we're envisioning. Mm-hmm. Um, those those are just my thoughts, and and maybe that kind of bleeds into talking about. The, the generational changing of the guard that might be happening or might be in demand uh, as a result of this whole crisis. And I think the means testing versus universal programs is a big schism that's representative of that divide. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think means testing kind of ideologically represents a, a period of time in which, uh, you know, it just wasn't fathomable to to offer things like uh, you know, single payer healthcare or UBI, no question asked. You know, I, I think it was kind of um, it kind of legitimizes the process of giving someone money. You know, it's like, well, you went through the application, we've thoroughly reviewed your income and you know your your, your economic status and your class status, and we we deem that you are worthy of this percentage of aid based on where you are in society. Right? There's a lot of kind of calculus going on there but i think in some way it's not even really the act of like the math that's important right it's it's just sort of the the idea of having to go through hoops to get it like not getting a handout right i mean the 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 conservative value value system is all about like well we don't want to give people handouts but i think in in a in a implicit way democrats sort of do that too by making people go through these processes so yeah, and and I think you know we're just we're just not in that just in terms of progressive Democrats. They're just not they're not about that at all. So, and it's just like you know Michael Brooks brought up this point. And I think Crystal Ball did too. Like you know, are we really going to make somebody who's like sixty, seventy plus right now and needs to like get onto a FAFSA form on the internet to like apply for their twelve hundred dollar check? you know, to, to, to get their rent, like maybe they don't use the internet, you know, Um, we're talking about different people in different areas of society who may or may not be, you know, technologically new media competent. And we're really going to make them go through these hoops, you know, in order to just get some basic survival needs right now, Um, or just the longer process of waiting for that. While like, you know, rent is coming up, it's it's March 23rd, right now, we got a week, you know, so there's a lot of people who are out of a job in this economy and everything that's just happened. And, you know, who knows how long this process of getting this red tape going and getting confirmed and getting your check mailed is going to take. So, yeah, there's 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 much to be said about the expediency and the failure of bureaucracy, even if it's sort of well-intentioned. Um, 
I, I just don't think it flies anymore. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, there's a lot of moral, ethical, and you know philosophical, ideological arguments about why people are for universal programs versus means-tested welfare programs, the role of government, is this socialism, is it immoral to just give people money? And to me, I think opportunities like this demand, you know, given that it's a crisis, demand that we cut through the bullshit and just get straight into helping people so that they don't starve or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm really hoping that uh, as this crisis unfolds before our very eyes, it will allow people to cut through their rigid dogmas and to just enact programs that are that demonstrably help tangibly help people who really need it and i was so happy to see like mitt romney like i can't believe like that guy was leading the charge on the conservative side outflanking some of the democrats on this i mean it's like this is the age that we that we live in and i don't know if this is um some kind of a cynical political move or you know as a way to help trump get reelected or whatever doing the popular thing or if it's a genuine demonstration of a change in consciousness if this is this some kind of bizarre form of social evolution on the right where people like Mitt Romney are championing UBI and sounding like a reincarnation of Andrew Yang I don't know either way I just want the money I want everyone to get the money and I'm really hoping that this event is kind of a down-to-earth moment where we can cut through our ideologies and just get practical with what really helps people right now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well said well said you know that's the problem with this is like I don't know. You you guys probably also saw the whole like um, the Fed's printing a tr- up to a trillion dollars a day, right, yeah. for the next thirty days. Uh, <laughs> I mean, sure, there are problems with like doing that in terms of inflation, but you know, again, it's like they they could they could pay everybody right now if they really wanted to, and, and it really does come down to not a matter of money but political will. And there's been a lot of resistance to that. And Crystal Ball has mentioned this again and again, that, you know, a couple of weeks ago before the coronavirus hit us and before the stock market began to crash, you know, Bernie seemed fairly radical to centrist Democrats, let alone Republicans, and the kinds of measures that he was asking for in terms of U.S.-centric politics, not in terms of the rest of the world, but U.S.-centric politics. But after this, you know, the change of tone, the dramatic restructuring of attitudes is really, I mean, I find it to be very, very interesting. Like Mitt Romney talking about basically a UBI is just, I would never, I could never in a, in a million years imagine myself in a reality where that happened. Like I would never think of that. And yet here we are. Um, and Bernie's policies seem, you know, kind of tame now in comparison to to the crisis. They don't seem that far-fetched. They're, they're kind of a bare minimum. And I want to also point out like, our first podcast was right before that next Super Tuesday, right? Like we were talking about growing down. We were talking about the 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 sort of um, uh, the, the whole idea of like growing down politics and how uh, the left or the progressive economic is the new center, right? And this is before all this happened. <laughs> so I just kind of want to like acknowledge that like we we were kind of speaking about something we had no idea that was actually going to hit us in a way that we could never have expected even a week ago yeah i think that's a good point um and i also i don't want to lose my original train of thought but it kind of irks me that the people that kind of got us into this position can't 
kind of identify the people that were able to identify this problem before the emergency happened. And that, it, it just kind of drives me crazy that someone else is going to come in and try to form these ideas when there's been a leading front um, all along. But kind of going back to your, your thing, Ryan, because my mind's still kind of blown about you know, what in your perfect world, um, I mean, does a millionaire get a, uh, like a thousand dollars a month or like what in your perfect system? What is, what does it look like that the government should roll out? Uh, in terms of, in terms of UBI. Yeah. And I like how, how Yang says, I'm okay giving Jeff Bezos a thousand dollars a month just to remind him that he's an American. So I think you can Mm -hmm. make an ethical argument from that angle but also there are kind of there are practical angles to that um uh, everything i just mentioned and also that a lot of the taxes the tax systems that we need to implement are going to be hitting those rich people the hardest so we're going to get way more like tax uh money from them than they're getting back in a thousand dollars so it is kind of like a fair trade-off in that Large tech companies, for example, like Amazon, trillion-dollar tech company that paid zero in taxes in 2019, is gonna we're gonna be extracting hopefully with with like a VAT tax or something we can extract a lot of revenue from them, and if you want to give them a thousand dollars a month, I'm okay with that. And so it just it just makes it easier, and I think that you can make an argument of saying, well, why not have it targeted specifically to people of lower income brackets? Like Tulsi Gabbard's form of UBI is only for people making. Two hundred thousand dollars or less. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, I'm actually okay with either one of those. I think two hundred thousand dollars that might not be a bad place to cut it. But in terms of a universal program, I just, I just like the the moral spirit of, of universality, um, and, and on top of all of the practical uh, implications of that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Bernie is proposing two thousand dollars, or and then guaranteeing up to like seventy five thousand income for the annual annual income have you guys heard that one yeah i have heard that yeah uh you know i i I don't really come down hard on like a a a tulsi version versus a uh, andrew yang version but i do i do think it's interesting the whole idea of symbolically sending jeff bezos a thousand dollar check every month um as we're probably you know in this in this system I mean, we would be, I don't know how much he makes every, every month. It's just an obscene amount, but we would be taking most of that every single month going right back into healthcare and, um, other public services, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I think that could be interesting philosophically speaking and ethically. Um, I'm kind of intrigued by that, but I'd be fine if Tulsi's plan got enacted as well. You know, I mean, I'd be in that bracket. That's fine by me. Yeah. I'll be Um, in that bracket for a long time. Most people would, you know, and that's the thing. Like we don't really think about it, but or we do, but not a lot of people make more money than two hundred thousand dollars a year. A lot of people are way under that. Uh, so the majority are way under that. So just speaking of that, I think it, it's it's basically essentially a universal program. So, so I mean, my understanding, what's been passed already is two six hundred dollar checks, right, per individual. So at least in one of the first two bills that passed. I believe it's a maximum of twelve hundred dollars. Does that sound correct to you guys? I think it was, yeah, per person or whatever. Yeah. Now that that bill is getting negotiated still, though, right? As of this I, recording, I think that part passed already. There's like three stages, and I think this is sort of the major one as far as the f- initial one was sort of an attempt at stabilization, 
sort of, you know, let's, let's kind of get some money out there for the first month, but let's long, this is now the long-term bill. I think that they're debating right now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Bernie's point was like, well, what's $1,200 going to do after that money runs out? You know, nothing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's no there's no one proposing or at least no one seriously proposing a, an ongoing universal basic income as we weather this Great Depression. I mean, so, you know, I think I think it's all maybe we're all just in denial at the moment. You know, politicians are like, all right, well, we need to make this happen for two to three months and then we can go back to the way things were. You know, even like Trump mm-hmm. in all of his uh, talks every day is saying like, we're gonna we're gonna bounce back, you know, uh, greater than ever. We're gonna surge back after this is all over, and the economy's gonna be great. It's gonna boom. Uh, and I think a lot of people are just sort of waiting, like, okay, when can I go back to work? Uh, June, yep. May. Let's let's. So there's this sense that like this is just a blip. This is just a hiccup, and we're gonna go back to normal. There is no new normal. This is just a um, a temporary autonomous zone where everything it breaks down for a minute, and we do absurd things like UBI and, and, and other stuff like that, but it'll all go back. It'll all go back. Um, I don't think that's the reality. I mean, uh, the one thing I did read this morning was that piece about, um, I can bring it up on my, my screen here, but basically they're predicting a 30% unemployment. Yeah. And that it would be, you know, take the, a decade really to kind of get over that. And then with, um, with, you know, advancements in automation, uh, you know, I think the article was saying basically like we may not get back up to, you know, the employment numbers before the crash ever, you know, just the jobless world of, of automation is coming and this is helping us leap into that more to Andrew Yang's point. Right. Um, so this is this is really serious. We haven't, you know, the Great Depression, I think it was 25 or 26 percent unemployment. Uh, so, you know, again, it's just a prediction, but that's, that's quite a thing to really take in. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're saying it's, yeah, it's not a, it's not just go back to normal. And obviously, you know, uh, kind of discounting what Trump says most of the time. I, I, I don't think that's, I think you're right on with, I'm not sure, you know, there is no, it's not going back to where it was. And now, you know, what does the future look like? And I think that's the uncertainty facing everyone, you know, and on top of the virus thing, there it's kind of, uh, kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I wanted to address in today's episode was how was was to really call out and make explicit how a lot of us in the integral metamodern game be the emergencia bubble have a certain way of sense making this event. In some ways, in a very bizarre kind of form, it's been kind of a treat. It's been just a buffet of sense making mm-hmm. opportunities in which we can project all of our greatest hopes and aspirations into this and what, what will come out of this. You know, as Jimmy, George, Jimmy Dore said, whoever, whoever would have thought that coronavirus would be our progressive champion and us mm-hmm. really hoping that society will change for the better in a certain direction after this. And I just want to call to attention that for the vast majority of humanity and all of our different mimetic tribes that we belong to, they've interpreted this very, very, very differently. There are a huge swath of people who are just like, I can't wait till this is over. I can't wait till the stock market goes back up and I can just go back to work uh, because this is a pain in the ass, you know. And there are a lot of other people who are really taking a darker angle, a more conspiratorial angle, even the way the different governments around the world 
are reacting to this. It's just been a gigantic Rorschach test for people to project all of our worldviews, values, fears, desires, and aspirations mm-hmm. into this. And one of the things I was talking to someone about before I, I jumped onto this podcast was, I think a truly integral or, or metamodern way of framing this whole event is to calibrate all of the other ways that the, the various memetic tribes of humanity, and we can break that demographic down into however we want to, how all these different groups are sense-making this event, and then to mm-hmm. organize it coherently in some kind of mandala of collective sense-making, and to try mm-hmm. to have some, try to cohere it or, or um, just, you know, connect it in some way that it wouldn't be completely schizoid and fractured. And, um, and I do have some worry about this event on a, as it could maybe even exacerbate the um, p- political polarization or divisiveness that we have. And, uh, and obviously, you know, Twitter has always been raging, but it seems like the Twitter wars have really ramped up with what some of the people have been saying about this from both sides of the political aisle, also religious people still getting together in large prayer gatherings in certain countries or in certain communities. So there are a lot of implications with gauging how different people, groups of people are interpreting this. And I I just hope that we can cohere it in some kind of way that's not totally divisive and schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, What do you think that would look like, right? Like, I really like the idea or the image of a mandala of mimetic tribes that are that are all kind of responding to this in kind um and you shared a couple of uh, hot takes with us in the in the discord channel for the podcast yeah some of them are pretty funny and and ones that i had never even thought of before a lot of them are very conspiratorial um and you picked those up what just like in, in just normal facebook groups right just facebook groups for various communities conservative or otherwise so i don't know what my question is exactly but but yeah, how, how would you see that mandala? Yeah, well, I think that... I, 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 so one of my ideas I've always had as a kind of a mass... It may have some Orwellian implications in this idea, but I wanted to design really clever uh, polls that would be designed in a way to really extract data from people as to what their values and hopes and fears are. Uh, and if you want to bring in the, the stages of development here, we, it could that could be determined from the poll somehow. I don't know exactly what that would look like, given how a lot of people's true interests usually are subconscious. Um, And so it takes a certain kind of exercise to really draw that out of them. But I do think that a well-designed poll that could really get to people's underlying concerns and people's underlying way of sense-making this event could be really helpful to cut through some of the noise and get to the core values of the bedrock values that people are living from and then from there we can organize a system or or a meta narrative to to, uh, to borrow thomas bjorkman's idea that could really speak to everyone wherever they're at right so it's not that we all need to be sublated into some kind of mono narrative but by getting a more diverse view of the mimetic landscape we're able to have a more coherent vision of how those can all live harmoniously as all these different meme stacks are warring with each other and bumping into each other and if I was a world leader, I would be trying to do that. I would be trying to design some kind of poll that that could be used to see, like, what are people what are people doing on their free time? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you really happy to to have like little 
meta modern retreat, you know, or are you like dying to go back to work? Has it been really hard to not go outside and get exercise? Do you, are you feeling even more alienated and isolated and suffering from some more uh, mental health problems related to modern forms of alienation? Right. So there's so many psychological and spiritual questions that we could be probing. And I just want to organize that and organize the data coherently and then try to create a meta strategy that will really speak to everyone wherever they are. Well, it sounds like you have uh, you have a, quite a project on your hands, right? Yeah, I've given um, I've given, I've given just a lot of thought for sure. Uh-huh. Well, it definitely is the idea of sort of, you know, a lot of what you're saying reminded me of a lot of the developmental politics book. Mm. And I, I just don't know. Um, I mean, it'd be nice if all that came together, um, but I, I guess I don't. I don't see people that have put their stake down on whatever side they're on to go quietly into the night. You know, I think mm. you can kind of see this debate going on with the bill. That you know, to me, it's like uh, you see a lot of corporatism still of who, you know, who funds the politicians who and how they're going to make their money and how can we make this kind of, kind of just sort of, you know, pass on by so we can go right back to where we were. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what the Democrats do and what they stick up for and what they don't. Cause that, to me, that's the big mystery of all this is they're in a position right now that um, they could ask for all these things that, the Bernie crowd has been asking for. And, you know, there, you know, we talked about it last week. There's a split happening within the Democrats as far as what they're willing to go to bat for. And we're not united. And so, you know, right now with Biden winning, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's on the table right now. You know, the Democrats have a position of power to make this bill pass. And I'm scared that they're not going to ask for everything that they can right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, Segar and Jetty made a very similar point when he was talking about the bill and the series of bills that they're trying to pass right now that uh, there's a lot of comparisons to be made between the 1929 bills that were passed and how Congress handled the stock market crash of that time and the stock market crash of today, that a lot of the measures are half measures. They are symbolically, you know, patting on the back sort of thing, whereas where he called it mealy-mouthed. Uh, not really substantive reform that prevents um, that prevents the kind of corruption from continuing again in terms of the corporations and the big banks, etc. Um, there's a huge bailout for the big companies and big corporations, but it doesn't help the little guy. So you know there there are all these questions, and there's a lot of language in the Democrats that, if on the surface, sound like, oh yeah, we're for the little guy, we're for the working class, we're for workers, but uh, there's these very substantive aspects of policymaking that I haven't seen Biden or Pelosi necessarily really kind of go for or be thorough, thorough enough. I mean, the severity of this crash um, is, is to such an extent that, you know, it would require something drastic like implementing universal basic income, implementing uh, single payer health care and indefinitely, right? Student loan forgiveness, uh, debt jubilee, these are the kinds of things that can help reboot the economy. Um, and I'm not even talking about like a lot, of, a lot of us in the sense making communities, integral communities talk about, um, including us, uh, that this is a wonderful opportunity for a complete transformation of society, right? This is our chance for game B, right. but I don't, I don't know. I mean, yes, I, I'd like to think that, 
but just even at a very bare bare minimum level that the kind of policies that need to be enacted with the system as as it is right now they're not doing it so i'm i'm very concerned about it as well because i you know just like 1929 as segar was saying you know within 2 to 3 years unemployment looked the way it did you know and and the 1930s started to happen and we know we know what that was like from from the history books so i don't know there's a question of how much we're really doing right now effectively and how much we're really helping the bottom line and if we can make a difference right now i think it would be to enact some of these very drastic measures but again democrats have been all about you know half-handed measures they've all they've been about compromise even when they have the leverage to not compromise. So I think that's that's always been a problem. And that's something we've talked about, that, you know, the centrist position in the Democratic Party is this bifurcation between progressive economic Democrats and centrist right-leaning Democrats that are always mediating and they're always doing these kind of half measures. And right now, most of leadership are still within predominantly these, you know, the centrist ideology. So I don't know if they're capable of even kind of thinking in this way. You know, I think they're ideologically even opposed to it. So that's my concern right now. Um, ho- hopefully, like a lot of things that have been happening, hopefully, you know, if Mitt Romney can argue for UBI, then I'm praying something will happen to change the hearts and minds of uh, Nancy Pelosi and some of the Democrats. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's so many things to say in that, but I, th- I think the the problem that you're alluding to, Jeremy, is that the corporate wing of the Democratic Party has so much power in, in terms of how the establishment has, has been captured by these economic forces in government. <clears throat> and whenever there's a compromise, it's still way right of center, at least way too right wing for our tastes, right? And there's been efforts to try to get the progressives into office, like the Justice Democrats and, and Bernie's uh, Our Revolution movement and so forth. And we, you know, AOC and Ilhan Omar and the movement is slowly starting to grow. But when it comes to things like Game B and the emphasis on like localized, decentralized, resilient, um, bioregional, regenerative efforts, I, I personally believe in what Herbert Crowley called Hamiltonian means to Jeffersonian ends. Right. And I really believe in the role of government to lead the way, especially in difficult times, whether it's the, the New Deal as a response to the Depression or, or now or whatever. We, we need the government. We need there is a role for top down government, at least if nothing else, to set up the best, most equitable playing field so that localized initiatives can truly flourish. And I don't see how these a lot of the um, what's it called fate, uh, safe to fail, uh, you know, tests and that kind of thing. As much as I I love those ideas and, and I also participate in them and totally believe in them, I've never seen how any of them could scale on the level that we need to. That that uh, so I, I I really do believe in the importance of government, um, if nothing else, just as a way to to help these initiatives get off the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is making me think of. Um... A, an article I just published and that Michael Bowens was uh, sharing with us in the Integral Left Facebook forum. Hmm. Uh, and it's it's basically a letter to a longer paper that he's been working on called Corona and the Commons. And he mentions this as sort of a, it's kind of a, an overview or an analysis of the coronavirus and 
kind of kind of thinking forward towards a more cooperative, decentralized, planetary civilization, but how we are responding to the current crisis and in respect to what we are as a civilization, what we could be. And part of it is, you know, one of the factors is, you know, it's really important to retain nation states. Um, I'll just read to you what, what he says with his second point. He says, the nation states are weak and the leaders have made mistakes, but they have turned out to be an absolutely indispensable institution to avoid chaotic reactions from a fragmented social field and to discipline the market so that everyone is not put into even greater, greater danger. And I think what we're seeing right now, especially right now, is the the weakness of the nation state to to not kind of fulfill that role against these corporations. And what we're experiencing right now in the crash is is part of what happened in 2007 and 2008 and not going far enough to discipline these corporations, to yielding too much power to them. So I, I absolutely think you're right that there, there is some kind of national authority that should be retained for the time being until we can implement something, I don't know, something more cooperative and decentralized and networked. But that kind of institution uh, will have a similar role, whatever it looks like in like, you know, 100 or 200, 300 years when we figure out, figure that out. But for the time being, um, we can't just let the nation state kind of wither away and atrophy like a, like an evolutionary, uh, what do they call those organs that you don't need in evolution? Vestigial? Like your appendix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't let the nation state kind of go away that far. And I don't think it is a vestigial thing yet, you know. And what it's becoming, might, you know, the nation state may continue in a different way. Um, but for the time being, we need them. So, Absolutely. Um, also, just so you, if you guys know, um, I was trying, is there any country in the world that does UBI? Oh, that's a good question. There, I think there have been numerous uh, tests, but there's, I don't know of any country that full on does uh, UBI in, in, to the degree that we're talking about other than the state of Alaska with their very micro um, yeah. petroleum dividend. I mean, to me, the, the even before UBI, you know, we're talking last week, I think we talked about as well, but the, the social safety net, I mean, and to me, this is where the healthcare thing comes in drastically. I think Bernie tweeted out, someone got a bill the other day of like 30,000 for the related to the coronavirus. It, you know, and to me, this is, I don't, I don't, this is where politics drives me nuts, but I don't see the Democrats right now lobbying for that. Uh, my, my bet would be that's not in whatever bill they're proposing, right? You would guess? Probably not. Yeah. And that's what makes me just, and it makes, I think young people just really tune out from this process. It's like, how many, how many crises do you have to be in where, you know, you, the, the writing's on the wall. It seems clear as day. They don't do it. People go on with their lives. Another crisis happens. And, and it's just, uh, it's a part that can make you disillusioned with the political process. Um, so I know that's where my head is at. You know, I just don't have a lot of faith in these people that we put in office with the media of, you know, coming out. I mean, you can take this crisis right now and use it as an opportunity to, to really be very enthusiastic about what the future might bring. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of building up for coming out of this, whenever this bill comes out and passes eventually of just being disheartened, you know, of mm -hmm. going, here we go again, big guys win, little guy loses and just, you know, collect your breadcrumbs and, and move along kind of a thing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Matt. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the populist anger. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe this would be a good time to bring it up because Jeremy, I know you were talking about, and I think we both we both share this prediction of how the right populists will outflank the democratic establishment on economic issues. And I want to have you speak to that in a, in a second. But something that I've been thinking about is how for each of the major spheres or sectors of society, right? there's the political sector, the economic sector, and the cultural or, or civil sector, there can be populist sentiments blowing through all three of those. So I found Donald Trump was an interesting figure because he had the political angle of drain the swamp. And he also had a cultural populism of giving the middle finger to all of the SJWs and especially woke capital, right? All of the all of the ways and all the institutions like Hollywood and the media and sports where progressive ideology became ossified into. And he was trying to kind of break that apart, at, at least symbolize a challenge of that uh, progressive hegemony and in cultural institutions. And Bernie, of course, ha- in my opinion, he really leads with the economic populism, right? The billionaires, the corporations, the top 1%, these are all forces that need to be brought to heel and the government needs to basically get their shit together and, and control this in a very kind of Teddy Roosevelt progressive spirit. Um, and I feel like the right, Trump is is a shrewd guy and he's going to be picking up on this, the incompetence and out-of-touchness of the Pelosi's and the Schumer's and the establishment uh, democratic leadership. And my my prediction is that the future of populism is going to be progressive in economic issues and conservative on social issues like immigration and, and really explicitly attacking political correctness and uh, the social justice kind of um, woke culture, right? Cancel culture. Um, and so that, that to me is, is the biggest danger is that is is the Democrats will just be a further breeding ground for a lot of genuinely racist or xenophobic ideas that can be justified as it's combined with political and economic populism. And I think that Trump already tuned into some of that, and I think that they could just go further in that direction in the future. Any, any mm-hmm. thoughts on that theory? I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm in mostly complete agreement and and I, you know I don't think either of us are are happy about the prediction. It's just you know what we're seeing on the ground and what we're seeing the Trump administration respond with. Uh, the I fact that, on that Jeremy. oh yeah, Matt, you want to go first? Yeah. So I mean, for me, kind of what you're saying is there's two things that come up. Uh, the first of all, first is they you know the Republicans had the House and the Senate and they couldn't they couldn't. Uh, what do you call it when you uh, cancel out Obamacare? They couldn't do that because people in those states liked the benefit of Obamacare. You know, that was that was Trump's sort of first thing when he got president to get rid of that, and they couldn't do it. To me, there's a real message there, whether you're Republican, and these are Republican states that they could have got it pulled out and they didn't. So I think there's a value there in just saying these policies work for the average American. Yes. Um, and, and I don't kind of hear that enough on the Democratic side. The other piece, too, in this is um, where's Joe Biden? You know, when when the 2008 crisis happened, Obama, uh, I forgot who he was running against, but they were kind of neck and neck. And Obama's really kind of pulled ahead during this crisis. And it was a real opportunity to, to sh- see 
how Obama was leading compared to Bush at the time. And you see some of that with Sanders and what he's doing. Unfortunately, I don't think it's broadcasted enough with, you know, the the major political channels like MSNBC and, and CNN and stuff. But, you know, for me, it's just he's been missing. And then even the thing he put out today was, again, another Joe Biden moment goes, how how is this the guy that's going to lead us into the future? Um, and so... I, you know, I, I think Bernie's doing everything right and, and speaking the right message. But again, there's so many forces against him. I don't I don't know. You know, I know you've kind of, I think, stuck a fork in his campaign, uh, Ryan. And, and you know, it, it definitely looks like that's where it's heading. But I, I do, you know, there's also debate of whether or not he should drop out and be interested in what your guys' opinion is on that. But I do think the message he is sending is the right message, and his view of where we should be going with this, as always, has been about five steps ahead of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, as as you were just saying, and as Ryan was saying earlier, that you know Bernie has always led with uh, economic populism. It was the one percent against the ninety nine percent, and he never really he never really wavered from his stump speech even during debates and I, I wish he could have done a little bit more versatility and had a little bit more flexibility with his message because you know just in terms of the way in which politicians speak they have they're, they're trained to do this they're trained to take ideas they're trained to take positions and sort of flex and flow with whatever you know the the, the journalists or the anchormen are asking them in terms of you know on the spot and flip it around to their core message or I think Ryan, you were mentioning this last time to take your opponent's message and do it better. And Bernie had a lot of opportunities to do that, but that's just sort of not, not the way he presents himself. It's just, you know, not in his disposition, I think to really be flexible enough, um, maybe in a way that he may have needed to be to even, even have a chance, you know? Um, but beyond his own, like, because this isn't really about his personal failings. I think if they blasted him on, institutional uh news media 24 7 like they blasted biden or like they've been blasting trump right now uh his ratings would have gone up his votes would have gone up so i think media and institutional bias plays a massive role in that because for some time bernie was untouchable and just like trump you know if you if you showcase this person long enough and if you are depending on how you how you frame them, you know, with Bernie, it was always attacks against him in the media. But if you have someone like Bernie on the stage talking about your health care, talking about your concerns, and you roll that 24 seven on a mainstream cable news network, people are going to start liking it. You know, Trump's ratings are going up right now, because he's on the TV talking to people telling them that we're going to be fine, we're going to be great. He's parading out all of these, you know, different officials talking about FEMA this and we're going to help the governor there his ratings have gone up because he looks presidential. And, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with framing. So even, even in spite of, you know, Bernie's maybe shortcomings as a, as a political debater, you know, on the stage, um, it's not all his fault, but to, to your point, Ryan, about um, economic progressivism or economic populism winning out over left leaning economic progressivism in terms of, you know, the messaging and so on. I think that's true. And we have Mitt Romney as an example of somebody who is to the left of Pelosi. We have more of that going on. And if Trump wants to win this election, 
the way things are right now, if he's smart, and I'm afraid that he is smart, he may begin to position himself as a Republican uh, economic populist with a lot of xenophobic ideas. That's exactly what he's been doing this entire crisis. You know, he's been positioning us as we're fighting the Chinese virus, right? But he's also talking about getting checks into the hands of everybody. People like that. It it's not a it's not a thorough enough and sustainable economic reform, but it's definitely like running on that ticket. It's definitely running on the feeling of like, you know, relieving the workers in an immediate way that they need. So yeah, I'm afraid of that too. I'm afraid of them taking advantage of that. So I, I, I don't have high hopes that Biden could beat Trump, honestly, especially at this point. Yeah. So a few things I want to speak to. So one of the things I've been thinking about is how, how emotionally and morally cathartic are the different forms of populism. And I think if Bernie was running back in 2011 when Occupy was all the rage, there's no doubt he would have been president. And I mm-hmm. think that there are different seasons or different climates in which uh, the American people, it's almost like different collective moods of the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And I think that what Trump tapped into that the left does not tap into is the populist rage culturally and also against really draining the swamp as an attack on all of Washington, all of the corruption, all of these corrupt career politicians who are just basically smelling their own farts and not doing anything for the American people. All of these out-of-touch elitists, these political elites, we, epitomized by someone like Hillary and Biden, they all need to go. And I feel like the moral catharsis of that message hits different parts of our psyche than simple economic populism. So I, I would have uh, liked it if Bernie diversified his message more, as you guys were saying. I think he also has a kind of demographic disadvantage of trying to win over working class voters. Uh, a lot of them are, you know, of course, of all ethnicities. But if we want to talk specifically about the white, disenfranchised, uh, rust belt, opioid afflicted people who got their jobs automated away or outsourced by bad trade deals. And that, that crowd and that age group really, really doesn't like the more college kid identity politics woke style. And a lot of them said they didn't vote for Bernie because he got too captured by that wokeness. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind, of, it's kind of a juggling act of how do you balance two very different demographics that are like oil and water, right? Um, and I think the Democrats have had a disadvantage of that. But the thing I really wanted to bring up too was how as kind of almost a counter perspective, I think a lot of us progressives are very quick to critique how the existing power structures have basically rigged the election. And I think we're fair to do that. The role of the media and the Bernie smearing and blackout and fear mongering and straw manning and the propping up of establishment darlings, you know, Biden's and the uh, Judge and Kamala Harris and all those people. But the thing I wanted to also shed some light on where all of the millions and millions of people who really do like Biden and all of those white picket fence cul-de-sac suburban normie voters. And I think a lot about my, my way of viewing society and, and the various movements that arise in society is not so much if, is not so much based on if people are justified in what they believe, but just what are they feeling emotionally, what are their needs and, and what's important to them. And I kind of wanted to put the Biden voters under the spotlight because those are the, that's the group that I tend to forget about being in such a progressive bubble 
where no one I know personally, except for like my dad likes Biden, but there are mm-hmm. so many millions of those CNN watchers who are you know, maybe older people, boomers who just sit in their house, watch establishment, you know, mainstream media all day long. And they, they, they really care about certain things and they have a very visceral reaction to Bernie for several reasons. And I just, I just wanted to kind of give voice to those people so we're not only blaming the media. I mean, we should be blaming all of the corruption and the, the shenanigans that the DNC and the media pulled off, but, but also not, not forgetting about the people with real needs and real genuine appreciation for guys like Biden. I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I mean, one yeah. of my thoughts was, I don't, I, you know, I don't think even if the if Occupy was going on right now, I, I still don't think Bernie would be present just because I think there's such a allergy to socialism in general. But I guess to throw a question right back to you, Ryan, I mean, how how would you, you know, if you could be the puppet in, in Bernie, what would you say to the moral catharsis that you're identifying with some of Trump's voters? Can you can you? Uh... Say that again. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounded like you know, like what? How could Bernie's message really I hit to that? I think you called it moral catharsis of mm-hmm. sort of Trump voters. I mean, what what would that message be? Yeah, so I can. I'm not sure if you know, but just something I thought of. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks for asking. So. Yeah. With Bernie, I think it's a little bit harder if I was his advisor because he's already established himself in a certain light. I'll tell you what I would do if I was running as a populist candidate. I would I would attack how the corporations have hijacked social justice narratives. You know, Sagar calls it woke capitalism. I would attack woke capital, capitalism and 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 all the ways that the media and establishment politicians have superficially weaponized identity narratives as a way of pandering to certain activist crowds or pandering to uh, the more uh, identity-based left as a a mask to to cover up all of the egregious economic and neoliberal policies that they're enacting. And I would attack it in that angle. And so it kind of has a dual function of combining the cultural catharsis of attacking the the unhealthy aspects of um, leftist culture, you know, the vampire castle kind of stuff. But also it's really going after the economic elites too. And so I just think that if Bernie integrated a little bit more more uh, appealing to different moral palettes of what people are really hungering for, that might have been more effective in galvanizing Trump supporters uh, to mm-hmm. his side. I don't know if that, that, that would have been effective for him given how he's established himself amongst a lot of college students and stuff. But that's what, if I was running, that's what I would do as my strategy. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I would do the same thing. And that's that's the <laughs> that's the criticism that I hear, uh, like in terms of self-analysis, for those of you who are listening and, you know, the, the, I don't know, uh, leftist discourse and media hubs are, are new to you. Welcome. <laughs> but a lot of the conversation has been talking about this. It's been kind of a postmortem. I know Bernie's still running, but a postmortem of his campaign success and what happened, why did it fall, fall apart, etc. And, you know, a lot of the criticism has been we can't allow neoliberal woke identity politics that's disconnected from economic progressivism and populism mm. to to run the show and divide and conquer the left, because we saw that happening between the Warren campaign and the Bernie campaign. Um, so there, there, I think there's a lot to be done here. And I think what you're pointing to in terms of energizing in a sense, kind of activating the more conservative culture that doesn't like wokeness and is would enjoy seeing it taken down, which sounds horrible from like 
a left progressive perspective, especially a woke perspective, they would probably just reel from this conversation as we're stating it right now. But I think it's it's more of holding it to an even higher standard than the apparent wokeness on like, you know, Twitter dogpiling <laughs> is doing, right? Where everyone's calling everyone else out. It's even it's an even higher or even more foundational ethos because it's saying you can't divorce the economic justice from the identity and social justice and whenever you do we will go after you and we will tear you down and there will be a satisfaction and a catharsis from the left and the right by that in terms of the populace so i think you're absolutely right that there there's energy there to be unlocked and i don't think bernie successfully did it maybe there were certain like reasons for that maybe he felt that you know they were already in the bag, the the kind of the Trump voters who focused on economics, et cetera, and uh, workers' rights and populism. Maybe he thought they were already in the bag. And then secondarily, maybe he thought they were not as important as activating the youth vote. With the youth, he could be safe with that, right? He could be, you know, identity politics woke, but also very economically progressive, like most millennials are, you know, in terms of our values. We all voted for him basically 80 87%. So um, I think he was writing on activating that voting block and not having to work as hard with uh, Trump voters and not having to work as hard with uh, the boomer vote just in general, the centrist vote. So I think to your other point, the the boomer vote is a really big question. And I brought this up in our last, uh, our last chat that, you know, there are these different media ecologies that older people folks tend to consume, you know, mainstream media, etc. They have different values, they have different class interests in terms of being middle class. So, you know, they're in a completely different reality bubble than millennials are. And then maybe like the working class um, conservatives are, they're in their own little media network in terms of conservative media. So like, there were all these like bifurcations that I don't think the Bernie campaign really took enough time to consider how to win them over um and he ended up needing them because the 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 youth were just you know not activated enough you know so i don't know if any of that makes sense but yeah yeah um something that i'm probably off topic but what do you guys think about the word woke (laughs) (laughs) yeah um Uh, can, can you say something really quickly yeah. Um, just to respond to what Jeremy was saying, uh, you articulated that very well, Jeremy. And I think it just comes down in terms of political strategy and messaging. I think it comes down to something we talked about last time, which is how do we nest the values that are important to different mimetic groups and integrate them into talking about hard policy and economic reforms. And the two that I've identified, I guess we can call them like orange and green kind of values is that the Biden voters who I've talked to a lot on Facebook and, and social media and so forth, they care about a few things, right? One of the things that they care about are the, the kind of moral culture, the spirit of dignity and civility in politics and restoring. This kind of it ties into the whole conversation we had last time about restoring the soul of America. And a lot of people like my dad say that the role of the president really is one of being a moral cheerleader 
and not actually <clears throat> about enacting major structural reforms to the system. Of course, I completely disagree with that. But for a lot of people, I think older generations, that's kind of the old school politics. You have to kind of present yourself in a certain way. And I look at that as just superficial platitudes and toast, vapid rhetoric. But a lot of people, that's that, that's really important to them. And I, And in terms of the green part of it, the identity, the woke culture, and bringing justice, social justice to marginalized groups, I would I would basically say, if I was Bernie Sanders, I'd be like, a way to bring real justice to our communities is to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, to give everyone Medicare for all. And then I would say things like, the way to give people dignity in society is to, you know, is basically to, to take all these values and nest them into economics. And I think that he could have done better, a better job of, of mixing those two together. I think, I also think like someone like Yang could have done a better job of doing that too. And in that he, he kind of positioned himself as this very technically oriented, technocratic candidate. And he, he did, you know, he tried to get in there with the humanity first. And, and, but I think the left needs to be a little bit more shrewd about how they integrate the rhetoric of moral catharsis and and appealing to people's values and moral systems and, and integrating that with the, the economic populist uh, narrative. Well, I definitely think something that is happening or happened, especially with Trump, is that the values are just completely far apart. You know, Wilbur talks about that in um, Trump and the Post-Truth World, where his campaign was pretty much anti-green anti everything that, you know, postmodernism kind of spoke of, and that that's the foundation of, of the Democratic Party. And so I, I don't know how you reach the typical Trump voter morally. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm just trying to think in my head what Macintosh would say. I mean, there's some values there of, you know, definitely of amber that you would want to carry over. Um, and I, I even think, you know, Trump more embodies the red than the amber. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's a hard task. I mean, I, I'm even stumped on how you could kind of reach out to them, maybe economically. And I, I think with the, you know, that Obamacare thing I referenced earlier, that it, it's that these policies work. Um, I think there's a lot of other failings that possibly Bernie had that it was difficult to overcome. He obviously never took the offensive against Biden. I think that cost him. Um, but you're right. I think in the bigger picture of this, I know we're talking politically, but you also brought up culturally of, you know, how do you, how do you make sense culturally right now? What's going on? And I think, also, you know, with that too, of of just bringing up what does woke mean to you guys? Um, why is that such a strong reactionary word? I've Mm. seen a lot of people, I know Jim Rutt reacted pretty strongly to it. (laughs) Um, of it just being a really divisive word and, and, you know, definitely in the integral crowd of, of waking up, I'm not sure if waking up and woke are quite identical and I wanted to, or it might be too much of a tangent, but just see what you're going to take on that. Oh God. Yeah. Why don't we have well, Jeremy waking go up? And, I'll go. Yeah. All right. Well, waking up is like what it, with Wilbur, it's, it's more of like a, like development of, of one's consciousness. Right. So like waking up is individuation and then enlightenment in terms of like the transpersonal realms right do i get that Mm -hmm. right um so yeah i know it's definitely different because woke is more like i don't know um gosh uh what what would woke be in wilbur's progressively tuned in like you know like the hip 
the hipsters and the, you know, more of social justice warrior stuff. Is that what you guys showing up? You think? Kind of like showing up for like, you know, you know, the ethical questions and being present as a member of society, et cetera. Like Um, showing up in the voting booth. (laughs) Yeah, showing up in the voting booth, showing up for like, you know rights of other people and your responsibility and your privileges and your biases as a member of society. I, I'm just guessing, but, um, yeah, but I don't know. I I think woke has become so associated with, with, um, and and again, like I am, I consider myself somebody on the left, but the, the way in which obviously progressive identity politics has manifested on the internet has been, you know, not really in its healthiest form. There's been pros and cons to it. It's, it's made a lot of people who are more conservative and have a different kind of attitude about these things kind of more hostile against it, right? There's been a lot of bifurcation and oppositionalism. It's kind of created a sort of a tribalism. Um, and the left kind of eats itself. I think that is a serious critique, you know, um, that we, we witnessed it in the campaign, like I mentioned earlier, between Bernie and and Warren, where it became kind of like, OK, did you say this about a woman not being able to be president? OK, and then she goes up to him and said, you called me a liar on national television. Right. The, but those mm-hmm. are the kind of events that when they're played out that way, like, yeah, like maybe Bernie lost a good percentage of you know, more identity politics, progressive folks who are just, and that's been a thing that's plagued Bernie's campaign too, that at least in the media, he's been tarnished as like having all these Bernie bros, right? So the left is kind of at war with itself. And when, when someone says woke, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a charge to that. There's a kind of a pathos to that as well as there is a kind of, um, I don't know, an importance, an ethics, a justice, so I think they go hand in hand and that's, it's really tricky. So I don't know. Yeah. That, that's my feeling about wokeness. Yeah. Um, just, just to respond to your question, Matt, in terms of how do we frame wokeness in, in, in Wilburian terms, the way that I've experienced it, I would say it is a form of growing up. People want the, the social justice crowd wants everyone to be green in the sense of adjusting your perceptions of society and reality to see the invisible oppressive structures or the or the ways that you could be inadvertently uh, a racist sexist homophobic oppressor in your language or speech or behavior and so it is it is an exercise in in cognitive development in in being able to see things that that a a non-woke person might not be able to see and and a lot of the the um, conversation around microaggressions and concepts like systemic injustices and what all, what other ones like uh, structural violence and that kind of thing in my opinion to really steel man them and express them in, in their highest capacity you do need to have a slightly more complex mind to really grok the subtleties of how pervasive institutionalized racism and those kind of things are but there's also a cleaning up aspect that's kind of latent in being woke in terms of being aware of all the ways that you can be a racist or decolonization implications of how people have internalized pernicious narratives of the dominant culture and being able to consciously expunge them and be liberated from a lot of these internalized narratives. So I, I think there are, you, we, can, we can frame it in these different uh, axes, right? But in terms, of, in terms of the world culture, to me, the heart of it, and again, this is, this is a, a, a attempt at a steel man of it, it's really gaining a profound insight into how the lower left quadrant and lower right quadrant shape your consciousness and how 
you could be biased and have blind spots like um you can be uh, what's what's the word i'm looking for the uh um uh, it was like something um oh my god i'm my my woke friends are going to be very disappointed in me uh, <laughs> it was it, it, like implicit bias and that kind of thing like there's uh-huh. so many workshops on how do you become aware of that and and the whole working with your white privilege and being oppressive it, it's kind of like a form of, of a weird form of woke shadow work right but the thing, the thing to me that that's really um, problematic, and this is where I really get upset at the social justice warriors. And my argument when I talk to them is that, look, I'm all for social justice. I'm all for racial justice and equity. And I think there are a lot of inequities and injustices in society that need to be rectified. However, when you're going around lambasting people and excoriating people's whiteness and, and privilege, it's a direct attack on their identity. It, it feels like a direct attack on their body. And you are creating more Trump supporters and more alt-right enthusiasts that are directly counterproductive to the movement that you want to promote. So if you really are for these things, then and, and don't go emboldening and galvanizing Trump supporters by attacking them. And for I know I know a few guys, like white male guys who felt so attacked by the by the activist crowd right just for being who they are just for their immutable traits that as an act of self-defense and they're lifelong leftists they vote they voted for trump or became alt-right enthusiasts or trump supporters only because their identity as a person was so invaded on and i really think that the, the biggest problem is in quadrant terms is the left and the right have conflated upper right quadrant immutable traits, biological, you know, ethnicity and genetics with lower left quadrant insights into how your experience was socially constructed or shaped by cultures and systems. And it takes a real postmodern mind to really see the lower left quadrant's effect on your consciousness and subjectivity. And I don't think a lot of people can grok that complexity and they just down translate it and bastardize the thing, the whole idea into some kind of actually de facto racist against white people kind of a thing so that that's kind of my my uh thought and what so one of my questions is how do we reframe that in the and and, and this is what's so uh, remarkable to me is there was an article on intersectionality and um the lady who was who came up with the idea was talking to um conservatives about how they felt about intersectionality and the conservatives said hey that makes sense i don't really have a problem with the concepts validity i have a problem with the way the concept has been weaponized i have a way i have a problem with the way that it's been used and so if we can reframe them these concepts and keep the the baby and throw out the bathwater, and then represent it to some people i i do think that there could be some value in in a i wouldn't i wouldn't do that as a political strategy if i was running as a candidate but as a cultural um move that's something i've been experimenting with locally and online yeah, the question is how how do we implement that, right? Because this is where um, uh, some Gibsarian insights come in in terms of perspectivalism and the kind of oppositionalism that exists all over the internet of like one tribe against another tribe in that kind of totalizing way. Um, the media ecologies that we're using, while they were supposed to be more of a kind of a network complexity, processual oriented kind of dynamic thinking that you're alluding to in terms of what we need, to kind of see the lower left and the upper right um, in, in a kind of processual flow with one another, to kind of actually see that happening in real time and not essentialize a lot of these insights and, and turn them into a kind of a lower resolution oppositionalism. 
that seems to be missing uh, in in our ability to communicate with each other. So I don't know what the answer to that is, except, you know, um, <laughs> maybe a different economic system that is translates into a different emphasis of digital media that translates into different ways of communicating with one another that's not as oppositional. But I don't know. I don't know what the practical way is to to get there, right? Besides maybe um, the communication formats like what we're doing right now in terms of having these long-form conversations with people who, like you said, like the, the conservative actually kind of getting the, the, the gist of it when it's spoken to them, but then like not really liking how it plays out, you know, in the field, right? But getting more people in spaces that are dialogical like this and out of kind of, okay, I'm going to cancel you in a tweet kind of space. Um, I think that's really important. And I don't know how we get there, you know? Well, Jeremy, I think you're right on. I think it's kind of having talks like this um, about being able to have a dialogue. And, you know, I, I would say, you know, the, a typical Trump supporter sees a podcast like this and, and sees the word left in it and think it immediately doesn't speak to them. But I think the great thing about Integral is really recognizing we're all in the same boat and trying to find those commonalities. And I think for me, you know, you, you talk uh, and Ryan talked about sort of the the way the the left, the lower left and the lower right both kind of influence each other and obviously all quadrants. But you know, for me, and I think this is the real sh of how we can shape this, this narrative is, you know, yes, politically, this is what we can do. This is what politicians should do. But right now, what's going to be happening, I think, is a real cultural change, a real cultural movement, and, and trying to find out how these kind of, these tectonic plates sort of move together. And to recognize, you know, that even integral folks, I think, are kind of fed up with political, you know, the PC culture. A little, you know, I know for me, I have a strong reaction even to the word woke and, and, and understanding, well, what exactly do you mean by that when you say woke? So I think there's a lot of conversations, hopefully, that need to happen, you know, because the point is, is whether you're a Trump supporter or whether you're a Biden supporter and whether you're a Bernie supporter, if you make under X amount of money, we're all in the same boat. And guess what? There's more of us than there is of the 1%, 2.5%, whatever it might be. And the framework out there is to keep us at war with each other. So we're against Trump. And we're, no, we're not. This is an economic, we're all in the same boat. And culturally, how can you, and that's where I think Integral comes in, you could bridge those gaps. And it's really about, I think, what we are doing, trying to have that dialogue so people can start having that same conversation at the water cooler. That would be my angle of how we can perhaps affect change moving forward. Yeah, well I mean, obviously as, as a mediator and someone who's very passionate about productive and civil forms of dialogue, I'm all, I'm all for that and, and experimenting with different kinds of, of formats or um, practices or developing a culture around that. And that was, that was what I wanted to talk to Steve McIntosh about was how do you take this interesting idea of polar of applying polarity management as a way to evolve consciousness and heal some of the political schisms that we're seeing? And how do we turn that into a collective movement where people can start practicing on themselves and leading groups through the process of polarity management and de delineating the two positive values that are at each that are uh, at war with each other and to get and get a clear 
clearer review of the whole way that the you know those things are are uh, working out and interacting with each other. So, yeah, that's really um, a, a big part of it. But I think to, as a starter, this is probably more on a political level. I really believe that woke capital needs to be attacked and stripped down and separated from. What is woke capital? What's that? What is woke capital to you? So, so Sagar from uh, the Hill Rising describes it as a way in which the capitalist corporate elites have basically hijacked and co-opted social justice, identity-based narratives as a way to cover up all of the bad things that they do by by appealing or uh, you know appeasing the uh, activist crowd as a way to get them off mm-hmm. their back. And so mm-hmm. to me, uh, with Jeremy's example of like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren's exchange on the debate stage, there, there are two ways I think about it. One is how much attention that got and how much the media, the corporate media has uh, MSNBCs and CNNs of the world and their demonstration of woke uh, capital, how they have weaponized the identity politics narrative against Bernie because they don't like his economic reforms. Right. It's, it's a it's a it's a kind of a cynical um, weaponization of that as a way to further someone's own economic agenda. But then, of course, just to just to kind of counter myself, there are a good amount of people who genuinely do not want a male, a white male president. And I talked to a woman who's a big supporter of Marianne Williamson, and she's like, no offense, but I just don't want another man to be president. I just want a woman and I'll support whoever, basically, whoever, whichever woman uh you know, is going to succeed, which at this point is no one. But there is a hunger on the ground um, for more diversity or more representation as well. So it's it's hard to, it's hard to balance that. But I, the first thing I would do that I do feel like we have we do have some control over is to call out the capitalist hijack of social justice and call out the bullshit that it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just say, Matt, that this is uh, what Mark Fisher called uh, capitalist realism. And it's this ability for capitalism to capture any emergent ideology, any kind of emergent progressivism, and turn it or weaponize it against itself. Um, now, generally speaking, it's like, you know, the ability for capitalism to capture anything, even the revolt against capitalism. But in this specific case, uh, these neoliberal policies, which basically adopt progressive values in terms of identity and representation or, you know, a female president or a female CEO or a person of color, but retain this, the certain violent economic interests that are against the interests of the working class and are unsustainable, those get kind of buried underneath the rug. So there's been a kind of a, a divorce between what was previously understood to be the left as, you know, a an economic and identity progressivism like we saw in the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King, who talked openly very critically about, you know, needing to reform capitalism and to basically embrace socialism. Um, We've seen that split. We've seen that kind of break apart. So it's again, the left divided against itself is a function of neoliberal capitalism or capitalist realism. It's sort of ideologically woven in. So, yeah, I think integral can help this in in the in this sense of integral becoming more left literate and understanding how certain economic ideologies drive these forces of separation and oppositionalism and tribalism, 
and then being able to kind of go like, well, the integral answer is what is the emergent mentality beyond capitalism? Because I think, you know, integral is one of the few in terms of like Gebser's integral or even what we're talking about with integral theory. Um, there's a different vision for what economics can potentially be an economic ideology. So I think we're looking at, I mean, Michael Brooks calls it a synthesis of like the older economic progressivism and the new identity progressivism. Uh, we're kind of looking at bringing those two together in a new way. I don't know if it's a synthesis or not, but I do think they do need to come together and cooperate with each other. Maybe a symbiosis rather than a synthesis, right? But there has to be some kind of common ground that we're that we're searching for. Yeah, I was just you know thinking a little bit about. Um, I'm reading this um, excerpt here by Lee Fang of the Intercept about the Pelosi bill, and I'm just going to quote it here. It says includes provision on corporate board diversity. Is there any evidence such measures produce better corporate behavior? Question mark. Student loan giant Navient, scammy Wells Fargo, and opioid distributor Cardinal Health have very diverse boards. Has that made society any better? And I, I think you know, going back to the left culture and the typical right culture, uh, right being sort of anti-PC, left really having no new weapons to bring. Um, I just think this is the time that a new language, a new framework needs to emerge in order to uh, kind of what you were going, where you're going with that, Jeremy, is, is to provide a new outlook of, of seeing the world. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can do a small part of that is just kind of talking these things out and um, helping others also along the way. Well said, yeah, and and I, for the record, I would like to have Steve McIntosh on with us. I think that would be great. Uh, you, earlier, you mentioned um, developmental politics, and for the readers who aren't familiar, that's that's his book. You guys have read it. I haven't read it yet, but um, it's we've had interesting conversations about it. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, for me, and as I think there is a generational thing too. I think. Um, not to say Steve can't speak for himself. We, I know, I've invited him on on to this podcast and I haven't heard back from them and stuff, but um, I do think there's also a generational divide on how we're seeing candidates, how we see capitalism. Um, and I think that's also, and I'm not, I guess my other question too is how many young people are really interested in this? How many people, you know, obviously I think historically younger people don't show up at the booths and you see some of these younger kids that, you know, are on spring break and don't care about coronavirus. And I just think there's a real disconnect in our culture right now on how much politics plays into the culture. I, I think it, dis, you know, like I said earlier, I think it distances people thinking they, they don't have a lot of influence on it. So, you know, kind of what's the point? Yeah, I think um, part of our project is, is trying to figure out um, what how uh, young integralists and younger integralists and not even that, but just more economically progressive integralists can, can take some of these theories, you know, in terms of just uh, uh, what we're reading with like <laughs> crystal ball, right. And the, and the new populism left and right, you know, the new populist guide, those kinds of books, those kinds of that kind of thinking and trying to give a sense of, well, how does this work within an integral framework? And what can we do to booster to booster 
or rock it or, or um, embolden a more left-leaning integral philosophy that's like politically literate with leftist theory uh, because we've just seen that, you know, kind of missing. Uh, what happens when we implement it? You know, this is this is sort of the next generation's task, I think, of, of integral theory and integral philosophy. Yeah, and, and I appreciate, um, I think Michael Bowen's name was dropped in here, but the interview I recently had with Jim Cohen on my Talking with Heal podcast is all about him trying to, or, or at least him tracking how the UK, where he lives in, in England, is starting to go teal, right? How the UK is starting to manifest teal consciousness or, or second tier integral or whatever in all of their institutions, economically and, and business sector, politically a little bit. But the, the area of society that we both got most excited about was how this new integral consciousness can take foot in civil society. And there could be a spirit of civic renewal that I think can dovetail with some of these major political and economic changes. And maybe the coronavirus crisis is really an opportunity for that civic renewal to come back online in a more decentralized, digitized way where mm, we can really start mm-hmm. to witness the power of you know pure networks and the voluntary um, way of going about <clears throat> doing things that's not a market exchange or government mandate. And to me, one of the things I liked about Yang that I didn't hear a lot of other candidates talk about was in order to change the consciousness of a country, you need to change the measurements and we need to change what we value by changing what we measure. And to me, again, it really comes down to we need to expand our definition of what work is and what it means to create value in a society, society that's independent of the market. What are all the ways that people are helping each other out? How are our um, you know, neighbors helping each other or people donating to uh, nonprofits to help like the uh, children without school lunches now that, that's been happening to a lot of hitting a lot of poor families, right? How are people, what are people doing with their free time? Like, like the whole thing of people playing music or offering some uplifting messages to other people online during this time. And if we can capture these moments and say, look, there are a whole bunch of other ways you can live a meaningful and connected, valuable life, a virtuous life without trying to become a millionaire. Or we need to redefine the American dream by changing what we measure, which changes what we value. And I think that... There's, there's a lot that Integral can say about what those measurements should be and how they should be measured. I mean, to get mm-hmm. to go Hanzi, too, I mean, we could talk about development, right? What is human development? What is adult development? Like, it would be really funny if that was a mainstream measurement and, and it was like, oh, you know, coronavirus, one year later, everyone went up two stages or whatever. <laughs> you know, you went from Keegan's level three to level five or something. Or you went, you know, the average person went from orange to teal. I mean, that's just a kind of a goofy example, but that could be something like that could be the future. Uh, I don't know, Ryan, that sounds very uh, post-capitalist to me. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> like, okay, so you brought up Michael uh, Bowens again. And the fifth point he makes, which is the hopeful point through all this is um, he says, what has been emerging through peer-to-peer commons and open source efforts are the seeds of a new, of new institutions for translocal transnational responses which can at this stage not replace, but greatly strengthen the nation state, the multilateral regime, insufficient to the task as it may be. And then later he says, you know, basically this is an opportunity. Um, 
this is our possibility to, to one show what we can do to demonstrate what we can do and what we've already done experimenting with mutual aid and self-organization and open source efforts and post-capitalist ideas right and number two uh to use this opportunity use this as an opportunity of ped of pedagogical catastrophe i like that word right like a like a, a catastrophe that teaches us something mm. to strive for structural adaptations and reforms in other words we can't just be local and tribal we must be translocal and work at every level of institutional life in order to transform institutions and propo propose commons centric reforms and transformative policies and just like a final note too because one of the things he mentions was very gibsarian and i know he's been reading peter pogany who was a uh, uh, a sort of a Gibsarian intellectual looking at sort of post-capitalist economics that work better with the planet and the ecology. But what he says is um, uh, that Corona is a serious crisis, but the climate is, as mu is a much more serious one. In a paradoxical way, the global mobilization against Corona, despite the weaknesses and mistakes, has shown what can be done and how fast institutions can adapt and change their choices once our life and thus their legitimacy are at stake. This bodes well for climate change adaptation and ecological transformation. Uh, the deep transformation that we need for this bifurcation requires a mutation of consciousness. I know he got this from Gebser. Uh, on par with the ones we had in the 11th and 16th century in Europe. Though this time, it will need to be global and fairly simultaneous. We are not there yet, but we're definitely seeing strong premises for it, for which this crisis has acted as a revealer. And the last thing is that this is going to be, um, yeah, we need to escape the historical cycle of pulsation between extractive regimes leading to ecological crisis and, of course, the regenerative responses that human societies always have. And instead, we will need to move to a steady state economic and social regime that can last many centuries and millennia. Like, whew, what a what a paragraph there. It's saying so much, but I think it's reflecting on what you're stating here, Ryan, about this has slowed everything down and this has revealed that there are times in planetization where a growth economy is incompatible with reality <laughs> at a civilizational scale. And I don't think we've really been hit by that before. So it's like, these are some fundamental questions we're asking. Yeah, and, but anyway, and yeah. just a quick comment on that. Uh, one of the criticisms I've heard from post-capitalist oriented folks is that UBI is doesn't get to the underlying problem of the fundamental unsustainability of a capitalist system on a finite planet. And my answer is, yeah, that's a fair criticism, but working within the system in that way is the best hold me over to whatever comes next. And whether that comes through, you know, violent revolution or a catastrophe or whether that's something that starts to arise more organically, <clears throat> I do think that the political does play a big role in, in, in being able to set up a future that works for everyone. Um, and I, I like Bowen's writing there. It was very game b-esque in my opinion you know it had a, the, the eloquence of describing the power of, of civil society and pure networks and commons governance right and and how we do that in a way that's not purely extractive and, and meant to satisfy the bottom line so yeah these are these are big questions maybe it'll be we can we can dive into this next time and see will will uh coronavirus initiate the shift to a, a post-capitalist world i don't know it's kind of fun to to speculate I agree. Yeah, let, me, yeah. let me put my two cents in. I mean, just hearing this, and I know when we started this podcast, we talked about being irreverent, and and for some reason, my mind is is on two things, and it's King of the Hill, and on everyone's guns rights. 
So I'm just trying to, you know, be in the shoes of a typical, my typical Republican and listening to kind of what we're talking about and trying to see, does it speak to them? And I, and I know, Ryan, you've kind of advocated for what does integral conservatism look like? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for people that identify as left or progressive is to not lose touch. And, and this is especially with growing down with our, you know, with our levels uh, beneath, right? If you took it this hierarchy scale and stuff. But I mean, a lot of this is talking, what we talk about in my work, talking rich, which pretty much means you're talking a language that maybe the most common person isn't going to get. And not really to say to dumb down, but how can we connect with that, that large base of people that see the Democrats as just sort of the enemy of the state and and how do we not lose them by also you know how do we connect all these different levels um but i just wanted to leave with that my two cents of the king of the hill and gun rights <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i appreciate that man i mean I, that's kind of my whole shtick is one, one of my criticisms of some of these movements of the emergencia and company is the implicit elitism the, the consciousness elitism of it, that we can very easily lose touch with the realities of other people who have very, very different moral palettes, different needs, and different value structures. And that to me is one of my biggest questions in life is what do people want and how can I speak to that in a way that's healthy and satiating and evolutionary, evolutionarily catalyzing. And um, there are so many different ways we can we can frame this, but just to connect your question, Matt, with what we were just talking about with, with guns and that kind of thing, I really do think part of the conservative spirit is very much a spirit of localism and bioregionalism, right? This is the original Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian split. <clears throat> Hamilton favoring uh, top-down elitist, big central government manufacturing-based coastal cities and Jefferson with his radical grassroots democracy of agriculturally based farmers. I think some of that, that divide of the public and and the private and the the local versus the national are still very much causing, you know, driving the culture wars on a regional level. And I think some of what Bowens is talking about of emboldening civil society as a way to manage the commons in the most locally voluntarily organized way I think that can that can appeal to conservatives, but the question is, how do we take these ideas and frame them in a way that's appealing, and mm-hmm. frame them in a way that people can get on board with, while also doing a more community organizing style of just talking to people, like what what what's what lights your fire, what gets what get my my favorite question to ask people is what gets you really mad, and whatever mm-hmm. that is, there's a lot of energy there, and if you dig deep enough, and sometimes I have to dig really freaking deep. But there's usually some gem of beauty, truth, and goodness way deep down that's driving all of this fury. And excavating that and bringing that into the light is one of the most inspiring and profound and transformational experiences that I can take a part in. And that's one of the things I love doing as a mediator is at the heart of all conflicts, right? Conflict is an opportunity for transformation. And when you can really unearth the deep values that people have, and, and people can see how beautiful and inspiring and aesthetically uplifting your latent idea of goodness or a good society looks like. That's when real healing and conciliation and transformation can happen in my experience. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, the, the whole idea of like, how do we get 
King of the Hill and, and, and gun owners on board is, is it's along those lines. But I want I want to highlight that, um, you know, necessity kind of breeds transformation. You know, crisis creates the opportunity to to change things around. And I think with what's going on right now, um, everyone is is an economic progressivist. You know, like Mitt Romney is is arguing for democratic socialism at the moment. He doesn't really <laughs> realize he is, but it's it's kind of implicit in his thinking. So, I mean, people worrying about where they're going to get the next paycheck, how they're going to survive with their month to month rent or the month to month mortgage, um, you know, keeping their local economy flourishing in their local neighborhoods. These are the concerns of the economic progressive left and the right. Right. And then when it comes down to the crisis we're dealing with in terms of climate disruption, Corona is a very early harbinger of things that are probably going to be much worse and much more devastating in terms of human survival, in terms of having food shortages. Right. Um, you know, supply lines and resources getting cut off, uh, you know, crop loss. Who knows? This thing is wild, so wildly unpredictable. It's hard to really hard to really tell. But we need to build resilience at the local regional level. So the more we can do that and the more we can speak to the immediate needs and provide immediate solutions for folks who have no wokeness about them, you know, um, or have no literacy with, with, with integral theory or, you know, the peer to peer commons or planetization or like going teal, like, it, they don't have to hear about any of that, but if we can translate that into a language that they value, I think we translate it into a language that we need to value more so than that abstract terminology. It needs to come down to earth for us, so to speak. So um, I don't know. I think it's an exercise and a practice of doing that and seeing like, oh, there's this deeper layer that I really needed to like grow these ideas down into. And it is like, how does you know? How am I going to survive with with my fellow Floridians down here? I don't even consider myself a Floridian. Speaking of, because I grew up in New York, but like, I don't know if there was some kind of climate disaster where we all needed to kind of come together and build some kind of um, bio regional way of sustenance. I need to work with everybody. So you know, I, I think we really need to think of this in terms not in terms of the abstract, but in terms of bare minimum needs and how society can function because. As we see today, the underlying structures we've re- we've relied on can come apart very quickly, and in those moments, that's where I think we move in and we go, okay, I need to make these ideas out of the abstract and put them into, implement them for everyday people and my neighbors and the neighbors I don't like, right? So, those are the kinds of questions that we have to put our ideas um, through the grinder on, right? Like that's the gauntlet we have to run it. And uh, I think creative solutions and a sharing of values come come from that exercise, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And if you want to get really specific, <clears throat> in my experience, the thing that has bonded us from the beginning of time is food. And if we can form a community around local food, agriculture, permaculture, sustainable ways of providing uh, healthy vegetables to everyone, there's a kind of like street cred or deep respect that you get as a farmer like wow you you farm and you grow food for the community thank you man god bless you you know i think there's a reason Mm -hmm. why thomas jefferson said that the farmers are kind of the salt of the earth the embodiment of of goodness and purity in the world and i think that that really bringing down to earth in terms of the food and the, the ecosystems that we're ensconced in and cultivating those 
and bringing together people together under that umbrella, I think that that's it doesn't get more primordially connecting than that. Mm, well said. All right. Well, Whew. we've done about ninety minutes. I guess I guess we could wrap it up here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think. All right. We'll, we'll we'll do this again next week. Um, I think the idea of, of of how do we grow down is a good question in terms of bioregionalism. But who knows, guys? What the hell is going to happen next week? You know, between between now and and next Monday. So we may have a whole other thing on our plates. Um, so we'll see everybody then. And if anyone who's listening has recommendations in terms of like potential guests or literature you'd like us to comment on or, or review, definitely let us know. Um, we'd love to connect with everybody who kind of identifies with economically, socially progressive leftists who are also integralists or metamodernists. So thanks, everybody. And thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, thanks, guys. guys. Have a good one.